Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I will be reading Tess the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. So lie down, close your eyes. And let me read you a story. Chapter One On an evening in the latter part of May, a middle-aged man was walking homeward from Shaston to the village of Marlott in the adjoining vale of Blakemore or Blackmore. The pair of legs that carried him were rickety, 
and there was a bias in his gait which inclined him somewhat to the left of a straight line. He occasionally gave a smart nod, as if in confirmation of some opinion, though he was not thinking of anything in particular. An empty egg basket was slung upon his arm. The nap of his hat was ruffled, a patch being quite worn away at its brim, where his thumb came in, taking it off. Presently, he was met by an elderly parson astride on a grey mare, who, as he rode, hummed a wandering tune. Good night, E, said the man with the basket. Good night, Sir John, said the parson. The pedestrian, after another pace or two, halted and turned round. Now, sir, begging your pardon, we met last market day on this road about this time, and I said good night, and you made reply, Good night, Sir John, as now. I did, said the parson. And once before that, near a month ago. I may have. Then what might your meaning be in calling me Sir John these different times, when I be playing Jack Derbyfield, the haggler? The parson rode a step or two nearer. It was only my whim, he said, and after a moment's hesitation, it was on account of discovery that I made some little time ago, whilst I was hunting up pedigrees for the new county history. I am Parson Tringham, the antiquary of Stackfoot Lane. Don't you really know, Durbeyfield, that you are the lineal representative of the ancient and knightly family of the Durbervilles, who derive their descent from Sir Pagan Durbeville, that renowned knight who came from Normandy with William the Conqueror, as appears by Battle Abbey Roll? Never heard it before, sir. Well, it's true. Throw up your chin a bit, so that I may catch the profile of your face better. Yes, that's the Durbeville nose and chin, a little debased. Your ancestor was one of the twelve knights who assisted the lord of Estramavilla in Normandy in his conquest of Glamorganshire. Branches of your family held manors over all this part of England. Their names appear in the pipe rolls in the time of King Stephen. In the reign of King John, one of them was rich enough to give a manor to the knights hospitallers, and in Edward II's time, your forefather Brian was summoned to Westminster to attend the great council there. You declined a little in Oliver Cromwell's time, but to no serious extent. And in Charles II's reign, you were made knights of the royal oak for your loyalty. I there have been generations of Sir John's among you, and if knighthood were hereditary, like a baronetcy, as it practically was in old times, when men were knighted from father to son, you would be Sir John now. You don't say so. In short, concluded the parson, decisively smacking his leg with his switch, there's hardly such another family in England. Daze my eyes, and isn't there? said Durbeyfield. And here I've been knocking about, year after year, from pillar to post, as if I was no more than the commonest feller in the parish. And how long has this news about me been known, Parson Tringham? The clergyman explained that, as far as he was aware, it had quite died out of knowledge, and could hardly be said to be known at all. His own investigations had begun on a day in the preceding spring, when having been engaged in tracing the vicissitudes of the Durbeville family, 
he had observed Derbyfield's name on his wagon and had thereupon been led to make inquiries about his father and grandfather till he had no doubt on the subject. At first I resolved not to disturb you with such a useless piece of information, said he. However, our impulses are too strong for our judgment sometimes. I thought you might perhaps know something of it all the while. Well, I have heard once or twice, tis true, that my family had seen better days before they came to Blackmore, but I took no notice of it, thinking it to mean that we had once kept two horses, where we now keep only one. I've got a wool's silver spoon and an old graven seal at home, too. But, Lord, what's a spoon and a seal? And to think that I and these noble d'Urbervilles were one flesh all the time. Twas said that my great-grandfather had secrets. I didn't care to talk of where he had come from. And where do we raise our smoke now, Parson, if I may make so bold? I mean, where do we d'Urbervilles live? You don't live anywhere. You are extinct as a county family. That's bad. Yes. What the mendacious family chronicles call extinct in the male line, that is, gone down, gone under. Then where do we lie? At Kingsbear sub Greenhill. Rows and rows of you in your vaults, with your effigies under Herbeck marble canopies. And where be our family mansions and estates? You haven't any. Oh, no lands neither. None. Though once you had them in abundance, as I said, for your family consisted of numerous branches. In this county, there was a seat of yours at Kingsbear, and another at Sheraton, and another in Mill Pond, and another at Lulstead, and another at Wellbridge. And shall we ever come into our own again? Ah, that I can't tell. And what had I better do about it, sir? said Durberfield, after a pause. Oh, nothing, nothing, except chasten yourself with the thought of how are the mighty fallen. It is a fact of some interest to the local historian and genealogist, nothing more. There are several families among the cottagers of this county of almost equal luster. Good night. But you'll turn back and have a quart of beer with me on the strength of it, Parson Tringham. There's a very pretty brew in tap at the Pure Drop, though to be sure, not so good as Rolliver's. No, thank you. Not this evening, Durberfield. You've had enough already. Concluding this, the parson rode on his way, with doubts as to his discretion in retelling this curious bit of lore. When he was gone, Durberfield walked a few steps in a profound reverie, and then sat down upon the grassy bank by the roadside, depositing his basket before him. In a few minutes, a youth appeared in the distance, walking in the same direction as that which had been pursued by Durbeyfield. The latter, on seeing him, held up his hand, and the lad quickened his pace and came there. Boy, take up that basket. I want you to go on an errand for me. The lath-like stripling frowned. Who be you then, John Durbeyfield, to order me about and call me boy? You know my name as well as I know yours. Do you? Do you? That's the secret. That's the secret. Now obey my orders and take the message I'm going to charge you with. Well, Fred, 
I don't mind telling you that the secret is that I'm one of a noble race. It has just been found out by me this afternoon. P.M. And as he made the announcement, Derbyfield, declining from his sitting position, luxuriously stretched himself out upon the bank among the daisies. The lad stood before Durbeyfield and contemplated his length from crown to toe. Sir John Durbeville, that's who I am, continued the prostrate man. That is, if knights were baronets, which they be. Tis recorded in history all about me. Dost thou know of such a place, lad, as Kingsbury sub-Greenhill? Yes, I've been there to Greenhill Fair. Well, under the church of that city there lie, tis isn't a city. The place, I mean. Least when I was there. T'was a little one-eyed blinking sort of place. Never you mind the place, boy. That's not the question before us. Under the church of that there parish lie my ancestors, hundreds of them, in coats of mail and jewels, in great lead coffins weighing tons and tons. There's not a man in the county of South Wessex that's got grander and nobler skeletons in his family than I. Oh? Now take up that basket and go on to Marlet, and when you've come to the pure drop-in, tell him to send a horse and carriage to me immediately to carry me home. And in the bottom of the carriage, they be to put a nog in a rum in a small bottle and chalk it up to my account. And when you've done that, go on to my house with a basket and tell my wife to put away that washing because she needn't finish it and wait till I come home, as I have news to tell her. The lad stood in dubious attitude. Durbeyfield put his hand in his pocket and produced a shilling, one of the chronically few that he possessed. Here's for your labour, lad. This made a difference in the young man's estimate of the position. Yes, Sir John, thank ye. Anything else I can do for ye, Sir John? Tell him at home that I should like for supper, well, lamb's fry if they can get it, and if they can't, black pot. And if they can't get that, well, chitterlings will do. Yes, Sir John. The boy took up the basket, and as he set out, the notes of a brass band were heard from the direction of the village. What's that? said Derbyfield. Not on account of I. Tis the women's club walking, Sir John. Why, your daughter's one of the members. To be sure, I'd quite forgot it in my thoughts of greater things. Well, vamp on to Marlet, will ye, and order that carriage and maybe I'll drive round and inspect the club. The lad departed, and Durbeyfield lay waiting on the grass and daisies in the evening sun. Not a soul passed that way for a long while, and the faint notes of the band were the only human sounds audible within the rim of Blue Hills. Chapter Two The village of Marlet lay amid the northeastern undulations of the beautiful vale of Blakemore or Blackmore, aforesaid, an engirdled and secluded region, for the most part untrodden as yet by tourist or landscape painter, though within a four hours' journey from London. It is a vale whose acquaintance is best made by viewing it from the summits of the hills that surround it, except perhaps during the droughts of summer. An unguided ramble into its recesses and bad weather is apt to engender dissatisfaction with its narrow, tortuous and miry ways. This fertile and sheltered tract of country 
in which the fields were never brown and the springs never dry, is bounded on the south by the bold chalk ridge that embraces the prominences of Hamilton Hill, Bulbarrow, Nettlecombe Toot, Dogbury, Highstoy, and Bubdown. A traveller from the coast who, after plodding northward for a score of miles over calcareous downs and coral nans, suddenly reaches the verge of one of these escarpments, is surprised and delighted to behold, extended like a map beneath him, a country differing absolutely from that which he has passed through. Behind him the hills are open, the sun blazes down upon fields so large as to give an unenclosed character to the landscape. The lanes are white, the hedges low and plashed, the atmosphere colourless. Here in the valley the world seems to be constructed upon a smaller and more delicate scale. The fields are mere paddocks, so reduced that from this height their hedgerows appear a network of dark green threads overspreading the paler green of the grass. The atmosphere beneath is languorous and is so tinged with azure that what artists call the middle distance partakes also of that hue, while the horizon beyond is of the deepest ultramarine. Arable lands are few and limited, with but slight exceptions. The prospect is a broad, rich mass of grass and trees, mantling minor hills and dales within the major. Such is the Vale of Blackmore. The district is of historic, no less than of topographical, interest. The Vale was known in former times as the Forest of Whiteheart, from a curious legend of King Henry III's reign, in which the killing of a certain Thomas de la Linde, of a beautiful Whiteheart, which the king had run down and spared, was made the occasion of a heavy fine. In those days, until comparatively recent times, the country was densely wooded. Even now, traces of its earlier condition are to be found in the old oak copses and irregular belts of timber that yet survive upon its slopes and the hollow trunk trees that shade so many of its pastures. The forests have departed, but some old customs of their shades remain. Many, however, linger only in the metamorphosed or disguised form. The May Dance, for instance, was to be discerned on the afternoon under notice in the guise of the club revel or club walking, as it was there called. It was an interesting event to the younger inhabitants of Marlott, though its real interest was not observed by the participators in the ceremony. Its singularity lay less in the retention of a custom of walking in procession and dancing on each anniversary than in the members being solely women. In the men's clubs, such celebrations were, though expiring, less uncommon. But either the natural shyness of the softer sex or sarcastic attitude on the part of male relatives had denuded such women's clubs as remained, if any other did, or this their glory and consummation. The club of Marlott alone lived to uphold the local serialia. It had walked for hundreds of years, if not as benefit club, as a votive sisterhood of some sort, and it walked still. The banded ones were all dressed in white gowns, 
a survival from old-style days when cheerfulness and Maytime were synonyms, days before the habit of taking long views had reduced emotions to a monotonous average. Their first exhibition of themselves was in a processional march of two and two round the parish. Ideal and real clashed slightly as the sun lit up their figures against the green hedges and creeper-laced housefronts. For though the whole troop wore white garments, no two whites were alike among them. Some approached pure blanching, some had a bluish pallor, some worn by the older characters, which had possibly lain by folded for many a year, inclined to a cadaverous tint and to a Georgian style. In addition to the distinction of a white frock, every woman and girl carried in her right hand a peeled willow wand, and in her left, a bunch of white flowers. The peeling of the former and the selection of the latter had been an operation of personal care. There were a few middle-aged and even elderly women in the train, their silver, wiry hair and wrinkled faces, scourged by time and trouble, having almost a grotesque, certainly a pathetic appearance in such a jaunty situation. In a true view, perhaps, there was more to be gathered and told of each anxious and experienced one, to whom the years were drawing nigh, when she should say, I have no pleasure in them, than of her juvenile comrades. But let the elder be passed over here, for those under whose bodices the life throbbed quick and warm. The young girls formed indeed the majority of the band, and their heads of luxuriant hair reflected in the sunshine, every tone of gold and black and brown. Some had beautiful eyes, others a beautiful nose, others a beautiful mouth and figure. Few, if any, had all. A difficulty of arranging their lips in this crude exposure to public scrutiny, an inability to balance their heads and to dissociate self-consciousness from their features was apparent in them and showed that they were genuine country girls unaccustomed to many eyes. And as each and all of them were warmed without by the sun, so each had a private little sun for her soul to bask in, some dream, some affection, some hobby, at least some remote and distant hope, which, though perhaps starving to nothing, still lived on, as hopes will. They were all cheerful, and many of them merry. They came round by the pure drop inn, and were turning out of the high road to pass through a wicket gate into the meadows when one of the women said, The Lord, a Lord, why test Derbyfield, if there isn't thy father riding home in a carriage? A young member of the band turned her head at the exclamation. She was a fine and handsome girl, not handsomer than some others, possibly, but her mobile, peony mouth and large, innocent eyes added eloquence to colour and shape. She wore a red ribbon in her hair, and was the only one of the white company who could boast of such a pronounced adornment. As she looked round, Derbyfield was seen moving along the road in a chase belonging to the pure drop, driven by a frazzle-headed brawny damsel with her gown's leaves rolled above her elbows. This was the cheerful servant of that establishment, who, in her part of factotum, turned groom and ostler at times. Derbyfield, leaning back, and with his eyes closed luxuriously, was waving his hand above his head and singing in a low recitative. 
I've got a great family vault at Kingsbear and knighted forefathers in lead coffins there. The clubist tittered, except the girl called Tess, in whom a slow heat began to rise at the sense that her father was making himself foolish in their eyes. He's tired, that's all, she said hastily, and he's got a lift home, because our own horse has to rest today. Less thy simplicity, Tess, said her companions. He's got his market niche. Look here, I won't walk another inch with you if you say any jokes about him, Tess cried, and the colour upon her cheeks spread over her face and neck. In a moment, her eyes grew moist, and her glance drooped to the ground. Perceiving that they had really pained her, they said no more, and ordered again prevailed. Tess's pride would not allow her to turn her head again, to learn what her father's meaning was, if he had any, and thus she moved on with the whole body to the enclosure, where there was to be dancing on the green. By the time the spot was reached, she had recovered her equanimity and tapped her neighbour with her wand and talked as usual. Tess Durbeyfield at this time of her life was a mere vessel of emotion, untinctured by experience. The dialect was on her tongue to some extent, despite the village school, the characteristic intonation of that dialect for this district being the voicing approximately rendered by the syllable ur, probably as rich in utterance as any to be found in human speech. The pouted up deep red mouth to which the syllable was native had hardly as yet settled into its definite shape, and her lower lip had a way of thrusting the middle of her top one upward when they closed together after a word. Phases of her childhood lurked in her aspect still. As she walked along today, for all her bouncing, handsome womanliness, you could sometimes see her twelfth year in her cheeks, or her ninth sparkling from her eyes, and even her fifth would flit over the curves of her mouth now and then. Yet few knew, and still fewer considered this. A small minority, mainly strangers, would look long at her in casually passing by, and grow momentarily fascinated by her freshness, and wonder if they would ever see her again. But to almost everybody, she was a fine and picturesque country girl, and no more. Nothing was seen or heard further of Durbeyfield in his triumphal chariot, under the conduct of the Osloress, and the club, having entered the allotted space, dancing began. As there were no men in the company, the girls danced at first with each other, but when the hour for the close of labour drew on, the masculine inhabitants of the village, together with other idlers and pedestrians, gathered round the spot and appeared inclined to negotiate for a partner. Among these onlookers were three young gentlemen of a superior class, carrying small knapsacks strapped to their shoulders and stout sticks in their hands. Their general likeness to each other and their consecutive ages would almost have suggested that they might be, what in fact they were, brothers. The eldest wore the white tie, high waistcoat and thin-brimmed hat of the regulation curate. The second was the normal undergraduate. The appearance of the third and youngest would hardly have been sufficient to characterize him. There was an uncribbed, uncabined aspect in his eyes and attire, implying that he had hardly as yet found the entrance to his professional groove. That he was a tentative student of something and everything might only have been predicted of him. These three brethren told casual acquaintance 
that they were spending their Whitsun holidays in a walking tour through the Vale of Blackmore, their course being southwesterly from the town of Shaston in the northeast. They leaned over the gate by the highway and inquired as to the meaning of the dance and the white-frocked maids. The two elder of the brothers were plainly not intending to linger more than a moment, but the spectacle of a bevy of girls dancing without male partners seemed to amuse the third and make him in no hurry to move on. He unstrapped his knapsack, put it, with his stick, on the hedge bank, and opened the gate. What are you going to do, Angel? asked the eldest. I'm inclined to go and have a fling with them. Why not all of us, just for a minute or two? It will not detain us long. No, no, nonsense, said the first. Dancing in public with a troop of country hoydens. Suppose we should be seen. Come along, or it will be dark before we get to Sturcastle and there's no place we can sleep at narrower than that. Besides, we must get through another chapter of a counterblast to Gnosticism before we turn in. Now I have taken the trouble to bring the book. All right. I'll overtake you and Cuthbert in five minutes. Don't stop. I give my word that I will, Felix. The two elder reluctantly left him and walked on, taking their brother's knapsack to relieve him in following, and the youngest entered the field. This is a thousand pities, he said gallantly to two or three of the girls nearest him, as soon as there was a pause in the dance. Where are your partners, my dears? They've not left off work yet, answered one of the boldest. They'll be here by and by. Till then, will you be one, sir? Certainly, but what's one among so many? Better than none. Tis melancholy work facing and footing it to one of your own sort, and no eclipsing and calling at all. Now pick and choose. Don't be so forward, said a shy girl. The young man, thus invited, glanced them over and attempted some discrimination. But as the group were all so new to him, he could not very well exercise it. He took almost the first that came to hand, which was not the speaker, as she had expected. Nor did it happen to be Tess Durbeyfield. Pedigree, ancestral skeletons, monumental record, the Durbeville lineaments, did not help Tess in her life's battle as yet, even to the extent of attracting her a dancing partner over the heads of the commonest peasantry. So much for Norman blood unaided by Victorian lucre. The name of the eclipsing girl, whatever it was, has not been handed down, but she was envied by all as the first who enjoyed the luxury of a masculine partner that night. Yet such was the force of example that the village young men who had not hastened to enter the gate while no intruder was in the way, now dropped in quickly, and soon the couples became leavened with rustic youth to a marked extent, till at length the plainest woman in the club was no longer compelled to foot it on the masculine side of the figure. The church clock struck when suddenly the student said that he must leave. He had been forgetting himself. He had to join his companions. As he fell out of the dance, his eyes lighted on Tess Durbeyfield, whose own large orbs wore, to tell the truth, the faintest aspect of reproach that he had not chosen her. He too was sorry then that, owing to her backwardness, he had not observed her, and with that in mind he left the pasture. On account of his long delay, he started in a flying run down the lane westward, and had soon passed the hollow and mounted the next rise. He had not yet overtaken his brothers, but he paused to get breath and looked back. 
He could see the white figures of the girls in the green enclosure whirling about as they had whirled when he was among them. They seemed to have quite forgotten him already, all of them except perhaps one. This white shape stood apart by the hedge alone. From her position, he knew it to be the pretty maiden with whom he had not danced. Trifling as the matter was, he yet instinctively felt that she was hurt by his oversight. He wished that he had asked her. He wished that he had inquired her name. She was so modest, so expressive. She had looked so soft in her thin white gown that he felt he had acted stupidly. However, it could not be helped, and turning and bending himself to a rapid walk, he dismissed the subject from his mind. Chapter 3 As for Tess Derbyfield, she did not so easily dislodge the incident from her consideration. She had no spirit to dance again for a long time, though she might have had plenty of partners. But, ah, they did not speak so nicely as the strange young man had done. It was not till the rays of the sun had absorbed the young stranger's retreating figure on the hill that she shook off her temporary sadness and answered her would-be partner in the affirmative. She remained with her comrades till dusk and participated with a certain zest in the dancing. Though being heart-whole as yet, she enjoyed treading a measure purely for its own sake, little divining when she saw the soft torments, the bitter sweets, the pleasing pains, and the agreeable distresses of those girls who had been wooed and won, what she herself was capable of in that kind. The struggles and wrangles of the lads for her hand in a jig were an amusement to her, no more, and when they became fierce, she rebuked them. She might have stayed even later, but the incident of her father's odd appearance and manner returned upon the girl's mind to make her anxious, and wondering what had become of him, she dropped away from the dancers and bent her steps towards the end of the village at which the parental cottage lay. While yet many score yards off, other rhythmic sounds than those she had quitted became audible to her, sounds that she knew well, so well. They were a regular series of thumpings from the interior of the house, occasioned by the violent rocking of a cradle upon a stone floor, to which movement a feminine voice kept time by singing in a vigorous gallopade, the favourite ditty of the spotted cow. The cradle rocking and the song would cease simultaneously for a moment, and an exclamation at highest vocal pitch would take the place of the melody. God bless thy diamond eyes, and thy waxen cheeks, and thy cherry mouth, and thy cubit's thighs, and every bit of thy blessed body. After this invocation, the rocking and the singing would recommence and the spotted cow proceeded as before. So matters stood when Tess opened the door and paused upon the mat within it, surveying the scene. The interior, in spite of the melody, struck upon the girl's senses with an unspeakable dreariness. From the holiday gaieties of the field, the white gowns, the nosegays, the willow wands, the whirling movements on the green, the flash of a gentle sentiment towards the stranger, to the yellow melancholy, of this one-candled spectacle. What a step. Besides the jar of contrast, there came to her a chill, self-reproach, that she had not returned sooner to help her mother in these domesticities, instead of indulging herself out of doors. 
There stood her mother amid the group of children, as Tess had left her, hanging over the Monday washing tub, which had now, as always, lingered on to the end of the week. Out of that tub had come the day before. Tess felt it with a dreadful sting of remorse. The very white frock upon her back, which she had so carelessly greened about the skirt on the damping grass, which had been hung up and ironed by her mother's own hands. As usual, Mrs. Durbeyfield was balanced on one foot beside the tub, the other being engaged in the aforesaid business of rocking her youngest child. The cradle rockers had done hard duty for so many years, under the weight of so many children, on that flagstone floor, that they were nearly worn flat, in consequence of which a huge jerk accompanied each swing of the cot, flinging the baby from side to side like a weaver's shuttle, as Mrs. Durbeyfield, excited by her song, trod the rocker with all the spring that was left in her after a long day's seething in the suds. Nick-knock, nick-knock, went the cradle. The candle flame stretched itself tall and began jigging up and down. The water dribbled from the matron's elbows and the song galloped on to the end of the verse, Mrs. Durbeyfield regarding her daughter the while. Even now, when burdened with a young family, Joan Durbeyfield was a passionate lover of tune. No ditty floated into Blackmore Vale from the outer world that Tessa's mother caught up its notation in a week. There still faintly beamed from the woman's features something of the freshness and even the prettiness of her youth, rendering it probable that the personal charms which Tess could boast were in main part of her mother's gift and therefore unknightly unhistorical. I'll rock the cradle for you, mother, said the daughter gently, or I'll take off my best frock and help you ring up. I thought you had finished long ago. Her mother bore Tess no ill will, relieving the housework to her single-handed efforts for so long. Indeed, Joan seldom abraded her thereon at any time, feeling but slightly the lack of Tess's assistance, while her instinctive plan for relieving herself of her labours lay in postponing them. Tonight, however, she was in even a blither mood than usual. There was a dreaminess, a preoccupation, an exultation in the maternal look which the girl could not understand. Well, I'm glad you've come, her mother said, as soon as the last note had passed out of her. I want to go and fetch your father. What's more than that, I want to tell you what have happened. You'll be fast enough, my poppet, when thou's no. Mrs. Durbeyfield habitually spoke the dialect. Her daughter, who had passed the sixth standard in the national school under a London-trained mistress, spoke two languages, the dialect at home, more or less, ordinary English abroad, and to persons of quality. Since I've been away, Tess asked, I, had it anything to do with father's making such a moment of himself in the carriage this afternoon, I felt inclined to sink into the ground with shame. That were all part of the Larry. We've been found to be the greatest gentlefolk in the whole country reaching all back before Oliver Grumble's time to the days of the pagan Turks with monuments and vaults and crests and scutcheons and Lord knows what all. In St. Charles's days, we was made Knights of the Royal Oak, our real name being Durbeville. Don't that make your bosom plim? T'was on this account that your father rode home in the flea, not because he'd been drinking, as people supposed. I'm glad of that. Will it do us any good, mother? Oh, yes. Tis thoughted that great things might come of it. 
No doubt a mampus of folk of our own rank will be down here in their carriages as soon as it's known. Your father learnt it on his way home from Shaston, and he has been telling me the whole pedigree of the matter. Where is father now? asked Tess suddenly. Her mother gave irrelevant information by way of answer. He called to see the doctor today in Shaston. It is not consumption at all, it seems. It is fat round his heart, says. There, it is like this. Joan Durberfield, as she spoke, curved a sodden thumb and forefinger to the shape of a C and used the other forefinger as a pointer. At the present moment, he says to your father, your heart is enclosed all round here and all round there. This space is still open, he says. As soon as it do meet, so, Mrs. Durberfield closed her fingers into a circle complete. Off you will go like a shadow, Mr. Durberfield, he says. You might last ten years, you may go off in ten months or ten days. Tess looks alarmed. Her father, possibly to go behind the eternal cloud so soon, notwithstanding this sudden greatness. But where is father, she asked again. Her mother put on a deprecating look. Now don't you be bursting out angry. The poor man, he felt so rafted after this uplifting by the parson's news that he went up to Rolliver's half an hour ago. He do want to get up his strength for his journey tomorrow with that load of beehives, which must be delivered, family or no. He'll have to start shortly before twelve tonight, as the distance is so long. Get up his strength, said Tess impetuously, the tears dwelling to her eyes. Oh my God, to go to a public house to get up his strength. And you as well agreed as he, mother? Her rebuke and her mood seemed to fill the whole room and to impart a cowed look to the furniture and candle and children playing about it, and to her mother's face. No, said the latter touchily, I be not agreed. I've been waiting for you to bide and keep house while I go fetch him. I'll go. Oh no, Tess, you see, it would be of no use. Tess did not expostulate. She knew what her mother's objection meant. Mrs. Durberfield's jacket and bonnet were already hanging silly upon a chair by her side, in readiness for this contemplated jaunt. The reason for which the matron deplored more than its necessity. And take the complete fortune teller to the outhouse, Joan continued, rapidly wiping her hands and donning the garments. The complete fortune teller was an old thick volume which lay on a table at her elbow, so worn by pocketing that the margins had reached the edge of the type. Tess took it up and her mother started. This going to hunt up her shiftless husband at the inn was one of Mrs. Durberfield's still extant enjoyments in the muck and muddle of rearing children. To discover him at Rolliver's, to sit there for an hour or two by his side and dismiss all thought and care of the children during the interval made her happy. A sort of halo, an occidental glow, came over life then. Troubles and other realities took on themselves a metaphysical impalpability sinking to mere mental phenomena for serene contemplation, and no longer stood as pressing concretions which chafed body and soul. The youngsters, not immediately within sight, seemed rather bright and desirable appurtenances than otherwise. The incidents of daily life were not without humorousness and jollity in their aspect there. She felt a little as she had used to feel when she sat by her now-wedded husband in the same spot during his wooing shutting her eyes to his defects of character and regarding him only in his ideal presentation as lover.
Tess, being alone with the younger children, went first to the outhouse with a fortune-telling book and stuffed it into the thatch. A curious fetishistic fear of this grimy volume on the part of her mother prevented her ever allowing it to stay in the house all night, and hither it was brought back whenever it had been consulted. Between the mother, with her fast-perishing lumber of superstitions, folklore, dialect, and orally transmitted ballads, and the daughter, with her trained national teachings and standard knowledge under an infinitely revised code, there was a gap of two hundred years, as ordinarily understood. When they were together, the Jacobian and the Victorian ages were juxtaposed. Returning along the garden path, Tess mused on what the mother could have wished to ascertain from the book on this particular day. She guessed the recent ancestral discovery to bear upon it, but did not divine that it solely consoled herself. Dismissing this, however, she busied herself with sprinkling the linen dried during the daytime. In company with her nine-year-old brother Abraham and her sister, Eliza Louisa of twelve and a half, called Liza Lou, the youngest ones being put to bed. There was an interval of four years and more between Tess and the next of the family, the two who would fill the gap, having died in their infancy, and this lent her a deputy maternal attitude when she was alone with her juniors. Next in juvenility to Abraham came two more girls, Hope and Modesty, then a boy of three, and then the baby who had just completed his first year. All these young souls were passengers in the Durbeyfield ship, entirely dependent on the judgment of the two Durbeyfield adults for their pleasures, their necessities, their health, even their existence. If the heads of the Durbeyfield household chose to sail into difficulty, disaster, starvation, disease, degradation, death, thither were these half-dozen little captives under hatches compelled to sail with them, six helpless creatures, who had never been asked if they wished for life on any terms, much less if they wished for it on such hard conditions as were involved in being of the shiftless house of Durberfield. Some people would like to know whence the poet whose philosophy in these days seemed as profound and trustworthy as his song is breezy and pure, gets his authority for speaking of nature's holy plan. It grew later, and neither father nor mother reappeared. Tess looked out of the door and took a mental journey through Marlott. The village was shutting its eyes. Candles and lamps were being put out everywhere. She could inwardly behold the extinguisher and the extended hand. Her mother's fetching simply meant one more to fetch. Tess began to perceive that a man in indifferent health, who proposed to start on a journey before one in the morning, ought not to be in an inn at this late hour, celebrating his ancient blood. Abraham, she said to her little brother, do put on your hat and go up to Rolliver's and see what has gone with father and mother. The boy jumped promptly from his seat and opened the door, and the night swallowed him up. Half an hour passed yet again. Neither man, woman, nor child returned. Abraham, like his parents, seemed to have been limed and caught by the ensnaring inn. I must go myself, she said. Liza Lou then went to bed, and Tess, locking them all in, started on her way up the dark and crooked lane or street, not made for hasty progress. A street laid out before inches of land had value, and when one handed clocks sufficiently subdivided the day.
Good night.